Welcome to Homicide the Podcast. I'm Kevin. And I'm Brandon. And we are alone today. Oh my God. Anna. I think we're alone now. There doesn't seem to be Anna here today. I was going to say, don't sing too much because we don't have the rights. Oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Anna, you're not here. You're not here. We can't <laughs> ask you how you're doing because we don't Because we don't know. Well, we do know. I we are left earlier. without supervision in we our are. own apartment on our own equipment. What are we going to do without snooze? <laughs> Hopefully this episode will be as good as usual without her. Perhaps, yeah. Well, hi. This is episode six. We have Kevin, officially established. You what? got it right. Thank you. <laughs> I learned from the embarrassment from the last one. But hello, everyone. Welcome to episode six of the Homicide, the Homicide, the Homicide. Of Homicide, the podcast. Again, your host, Kevin and Brandon, and our producer, Anna, is just, you know, it's it's the week of Thanksgiving, so she is enjoying her time. She's being thankful away from us. <laughs> She's probably thankful to be yeah. away from us. <laughs> She's like, I'm over it. <laughs> yeah, fuck those dudes. Anyway, um, so we just want to give a shout out to and say thank you for following along on our journey yes. and listening to the podcast. It has been an interest well brandon what is what's new in our lives because we've had a little bit of a interesting couple of weeks so. i feel like that was a weird cut you were talking about something that you'd completely changed i know my mind went somewhere else and i was I like i was feeling like <laughs> at the same moment i was like i have to burp and fart and i was like do i choose <laughs> one do either do. i know and then i was like i'll just suck them i back mean in. just so because me. it's just you and i here doesn't mean that we don't have an audience <laughs> listening <laughs> i need to be careful about these things right you've um, already burped on almost every single podcast recording we've had oh god jesus oh, you're but mess. if you know me you do know that burps are a thing consistent they're a thing for everybody but i think for for most me they're a little aggressive so anyway <laughs> a couple of announcements brandon yes do you want to talk about our new minisodes that are coming out oh yeah kevin just said it we're having minisodes <laughs> that are gonna be coming out <laughs> so i mean okay, i will i will go i well, will continue it. <laughs> he gets so impatient so we decided that we are going to start throwing out some minisodes occasionally here and there they're not going to be something that's going to happen all the time but we would love to get some feedback from you all not it's just not feedback. Really feedback it's not feedback with stories from you all that's yeah. a better way to say that is we are doing our own type of hometown murders called minisodes. are you ready are you ready? Here, I'm going to do another. <laughs> Homotown Murders. <laughs> <laughs> I like the soundboard in front of here. I, can, like, I know, we can it. make up our own noises. That's kind of fun. So we're going to be doing Minnesota episodes yeah. featuring stories that you guys give us. So send in some messages to murder at yep. homocidepodcast.com or just go to our website and type out some information on the form and let us know. We would love to hear from you. Yes, which is exciting too because our very first Homotown murder will actually be airing on November 30th, which is yeah. literally just a few days from now when this episode releases yeah. because we did have somebody reach out to us already and share kind of a an, an actually an open case, which is interesting because yeah. we have not done that yet. We have not done an open case. Yeah. So we have to make sure that we are as informative as we can be because since this is an open case we don't yeah. want to sound dumb which <laughs> inevitably we will we will but, for sure but it's um, fine it's who we are yeah exactly so do look out so episode six comes down uh comes out <laughs> comes out on november 28th and then that thursday november 30th will be our very first minisode which I'm really excited about. It will really only consist of Homotown murders. And so currently we have one. So I don't know. Yeah. Maybe go ahead and send them in. Where do you send them, Brandon? 
Well, I did mention it earlier, but I will mention it again. You Thank can you. email us at murder at homicidepodcast.com or head over to our website and you can fill out a form on our page. You could also write us a Facebook direct message yeah, at, yeah. at Homicide the Podcast on Facebook or yeah. on Instagram at really, Homicide any, the Podcast. Any platforms where you can send us a message and if you want to yeah. share your hometown of murder, that yeah. would be fucking amazing so we also have one more announcement Announcement. coming out announcement that sounds Uh, (laughs) like a noose which we call anus (laughs) it does it does i need a little sip of of not water because today i am sipping on a glass of not pee it looks like pee. it does look like pee and since we're obsessed with pee apparently in this episode or this fucking podcast but this is a lovely very big glass of limoncello you're welcome this is also not your first glass so that probably makes sense as to why you keep jumping around from story to the story because you were just about to talk about our next announcement and then you talked about your beverage i know and i needed a beverage Um, so friends this is our oh oh that's marty she's freaking out a little bit Um, because i just placed my glass on the table Our next um, announcement. Our announcement. Okay, back on track. So we are very excited to do a giveaway, and it is called What's the Tea Giveaway. Why do you always do like the head shake with it? What's the tea? <laughs> I don't know. It feels natural. So what's the tea giveaway? What does that mean? It means that we want to hear from you. Now we want your feedback, <laughs> but only if it's five stars. But we want to get your review on Apple Podcasts, actually, specifically, so you can help us grow this lovely channel. So what does that mean? So we are going to run a giveaway from today, today's episode, November 28th, all the way through uh, December 26th. And we're going to announce our winners on January 2nd. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. What will they win? <laughs> what's that you say if you follow us on tiktok you probably have already seen this video it's but so dumb. It is. i don't know that we mentioned what you will win but what you are going to win is are you ready a stainless steel tumbler brandon oh. has one if you remember from one of our episodes i was like he has the cup it's a cup but it's actually a fantastic cup it works so, great yeah we're going to be giving away a tumbler we are also going to be giving away a heavy blend zip sweater I don't know what that means. You could just say a hoodie. Okay, great. It's a hoodie. It zips. Super cute. It zips. <laughs> and then also some fun little stickers. And then we're also going to do a mid-show review mention. So when you do that, we'll shout out your review because you won. But then also you will have an opportunity to join us on one of our episodes. Yay. Whether that's in person or virtual, yeah. we'll make it happen. We'll have you on. And if we you haven't want decided. to be on, if you don't want to be on, you're like, oh my God, no, thank you. Then we'll, we won't do yeah, it. Tell but, a friend. But it'll probably be us having you listen into a story or even maybe asking you to come up with a story yourself. Imagine that. So it all kind of depends. It's like a pick your own adventure. I know, which I'm excited But to about. start, all you have to do is leave us a review. So what's the tea giveaway? Again, November 28th through December 26th. Winners chosen on Dece- January 2nd. And you get a whole list of shit, which is really exciting. So please go leave us your review. It's totally random. We will select and then share it with your friends. Because we just want everyone to know who we are. But also right? so that they don't get murdered. So don't get murdered. Thank you. Okay. So today's episode, Brandon, episode six, what is it about? Today's episode is on, I don't know, have we named it yet? Is it just, uh, oh, Doctors Who Kill. I think that's what we said. Yeah. So we have picked two very interesting doctor Mm -hmm. stories. At least I know mine's really kind of fucked up, which they always are. We keep saying that. Yeah, yeah. But when I was looking, I was surprised with how many doctors I actually found that have been charged for the murder. 
I know, and it's a, it's really interesting too because we don't like we haven't. I guess dove that deep into our personal life, but we have many of you know that our dog is in early, well, not early heart failure. No, no, now she's in late heart failure. So Miss Martina Rita Fajita Little is life. not doing great. Yeah, but she is up here with us right now. So anyway, that's one thing happening in our life, and the other thing happening in our life is that my my dear father in law Brandon's dad has been in the hospital recently. So this episode kind of comes at a weird time, right? Especially I, on doctors. I know. I don't know if you. I don't know about you, but it felt I, really weird working on this one to I be know. like. Okay, so our dog is in and out of the doctor right now. Yeah. My dad has been in the hospital for like three weeks on and off. He yeah. is back at home and he's doing great. So hi, Dad. Yes. I hope you're hi. feeling even hi, better, Wayne. more better hi. now. Yeah, which I'm really excited about because that was a, that was just scary. You know, yeah. it's interesting as you get older because we're in our later 30s, nearing 40. And as you get older, your people just start getting older. And I don't know. It's not a fun... It is not a fun period in life, I don't think. I'm sure no one thinks that, unless you're one of these doctors we'll review right. today. <laughs> but it's not fun to see people age and, and certainly get into the hospital. And I don't know. It's not a fun period. So it's been a little bit of a rough few weeks um, recently. Right. But yeah. But yeah. the what we've been hearing back from the podcast and everybody who's been involved, it's helped uplift things. Correct, Brandon. Correct. So, <laughs> so anyways, we want to... Dive right in. I think yeah, it's I my think turn you, to go first. You go first today, Brandon. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Episode six, Doctors That Kill. Let me get my limoncello first. <laughs> Delicious. Okay. All right. Are we ready? Are you ready already? I just thought I had my limoncello. I'm ready. Okay. I didn't know if that's if we were keeping that into the... Yes, we're okay. keeping it in. <laughs> Sorry. I don't... I'm just trying to go with the flow. So right. apparently we're live. Uh, um, <laughs> we are not live. We're recording. <laughs> okay. So my, shut the fuck up. I mean, we are live in person. <laughs> go ahead. I hate you. So my story is on Dr. Dr. <laughs> like it just starts off that way. <laughs> my story is on Dr. It was very little shop before it, it was for you. Dr. Dr. Little shop. Um, okay. My story is on Dr. Linda Hazard. Linda. In September 1910, two sisters, Dorothea Williamson, who goes by Dora, mm -hmm. was 37, and Claire Williamson, who was 33, were in Victoria, British Columbia, from Liverpool, England. Coming from a very wealthy family, Dora and Claire had an interesting upbringing. When they were about 18 and 14, both parents died, leaving them with a mass fortune that they inherited from their grandfather, a Scottish-born Charles Williamson, leaving them with over 1 million U.S. dollars, which in today's money is about $34 million. Holy shit. Um, and various real estate properties around the world. And the ladies were set for basically for life. So growing up, they essentially didn't have any parental figures besides their governess parents. Are you Parent, talking about parental? <laughs> Damn it, I wish Anna was here so I could be like... <laughs> you, so you could judge her with me. Some Anyways. Pa parental. Okay, so some parental figures. So yeah, they essentially they didn't grow up with any parental figures besides their governess, which was a, a woman that was employed as a private tutor who teaches children in their home. But it was basically kind of like a nanny-ish. And her name was Margaret Conway. Okay. And so they had to learn a lot on their own. So learning to become weary of men in all facets became ever prevalent in their lives. So from men looking into taking advantage of them romantically or warding off salesmen who were only interested in their money, mm. these ladies had to become pretty independent. And especially in the fact that it was a time where women weren't necessarily the ones who had mass fortunes. It was mostly sure. all men. So now looking at their photos, they were really gorgeous young women. 
And they looked like the quintessential woman from like the early 1900s, like flapper-esque, but before the flappers. Love, love. Yeah, they were quite progressive for the time. And being that they were women with mass fortune, people looking... Would you say they were woke? They were actually like in the today's term... No, not at all. I just wanted to throw that term in there because everyone seems to politicize it. Anyway. I mean, they were a little bit woke in the sense that they, they, about what they looked into and what they did coming up. They dressed woke. Yeah. Sure. So being that they were women of, with a mass fortune, people looking in viewed them as worldly, wealthy, and eccentric. Okay. They didn't wear (laughs) like Seriously. No, I'm just getting like extra conscious about it. Where? Where? All right. I love you so Shut much. Up. Okay. okay. I'm trying really hard not if, to mess up, which is making done. me mess up even more. Here's what's great. And if, I can see your reaction on the corner of my eye. <laughs> it's distracting. <laughs> you know what's great, though, is that if anything, if this podcast fails, at least we have the memories. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> okay. Anyways. Where were I? This is why we need where a producer, I? because we're just I? going off the fucking I know. Rails. I know. Okay. She's going to be listening to this and be she like, She's gonna be man, I can't leave them alone. Re- okay, anyway, go ahead. People looked at them as worldly, wealthy, and eccentric. They didn't wear corsets, and at the time, that was a, a big thing. And they were vegetarians, which, whoa. And it was noted that the sisters... You eat no meat. <laughs> That's funny. Anyway. We'll make lamb. It was noted that the sisters, especially Claire, were hypochondriacs and had an obsession with healing themselves from illnesses by any means, as their goal was to save themselves from sickness and death. Mm. They also believed that traditional medical doctors were fools, that they they didn't believe in a lot of the science and technical jargon that they had, Mm. and they became dedicated followers of the clean living movement, which was and still is the idea of cleaning up society in health-related issues. They believed that eating bad foods were harmful uh, to one's health, so they only ate natural foods, nothing processed, nothing artificial. They didn't indulge in too much food. They didn't have sugar, alcohol, or drugs, and they had sexual purity. That's really interesting. This was in the 20s? No, this is well, and this was in the like 1800s. Uh, wow, okay, yeah, well, tech, okay. well, where their story comes in is 1910, but this story okay. spans yeah. from the eight, late 1800s to I didn't even, I, I actually didn't know that like vegetarianism is was a if that's even a word, was even a thing then. It was, and yeah. it was actually, I, I tried to do some research into it, and it was pretty popular, but it being that it was in that they came from England, it was more popular yeah. over there than it was here. Well, and I keep just thinking about those shows that are on. I think it's on Netflix or whatever of like that we've watched about America. I think America and like the food then mm-hmm. like I, th- I just keep thinking of like who invented ketchup and like that time period and like the sauces that they would use to like cover up the rotten meat. Yeah. So I like I think like back back then I I mean I wish I could be a vegetarian now. We all know how that ended with me crying in front of a hot dog stand, <laughs> yes. Ugh, which I'll expand on at some point. But in general, <laughs> I feel like I would have leaned more towards being a vegetarian than because of how disgusting the meat just food in general. Oh, yeah. Thing, but like, I mean, because me, yeah. I mean, it's not like you could keep the food very fresh for very long. No. <laughs> to me, it kind of made sense that they were vegetarian at yep. that time. Yep. So they had this lifestyle where they didn't eat anything crazy. They didn't have sex. They just like everything was pure because it led to a healthier lifestyle. So while they were staying at the Empress Hotel in Victoria, British Columbia, they came across an advertisement by a Dr. Linda Hazard for a wellness fasting solution in a Seattle newspaper. Immediately being interested, they purchased her book, Fasting for the Cure of Disease, and they read it and they were hooked. So learning more about Linda, the ladies became really intrigued, being that they lived their lives to be protected 
protected away from men. Like they protected themselves by not being around men as much. They were intrigued by having a female doctor. And at the time there wasn't many of them out there. So especially a doctor that was so impressive. She had, I think three books at that time. Mm. Uh, She was about to open up a sanitarium and she created her own methodologies that she created herself without a man. So as independent women that came from money, they idolized this. So it's now when Claire decided to write Linda, telling her about all of their ailments, like her stomach issues and Dora's swollen glands and achy knees, and they asked for Linda's help. A few days later, Linda wrote back, saying if that they were able to come to Seattle, she could help them immediately. Although the sanitarium was not completed, Linda promised to take them under her care and would move them to the completed facility when she could. Sorry, no ma'am. I know, Marty. No one is Rude, just interrupted. Um, But, okay, so who was Linda Hazard? I figured this was a good time for some backstory. Linda Burfield was her, or her maiden name, born on December 18th, 1867 in Carver, Minnesota. She was the eldest of seven children to her parents, Susanna and Montgomery. And although her father was a corporal during the Civil War, they had a pretty loving, and from what I read, normal upbringing. During her youth, Linda became pretty fascinated with health, though. So coming from a home of vegetarians, another connection, she understood the fact that what you ate, how much you ate, and how restricting your diet could help your health. It's also at this time where it's noted that her father, Montgomery, became fascinated with the modern medical practices and regularly had his children seen by physicians. That's good. It's good, right? So eventually these consistent visits became unhealthy. Oh, (laughs) But like, how often were they going? Quite a bit. So whether they were sick or not, the doctors would come up with answers to all of their ailments. At one point, all of the children were diagnosed with parasites, although they had no symptoms. The diagnosis was told to be cured with a popular blue mass, or also known as just a blue pill, that was said to be able to cure many ailments like a toothache tuberculosis, constipation, parasites, and pains from childbirth. Goodness. Wait, this feels very Matrix. The blue right. pill that like cures. <laughs> it's not. Oh, it's sorry. nothing like that. Oh, okay. At this time, the innocent appearing pill of glycerol and rose honey didn't seem too bad. However, society didn't know that the main ingredient, which was mer- mercury, is a toxic metal that can damage the nervous system, kidneys, liver, immune system. And it can also cause neurological issues like dementia, psychosis, and uh, personality changes. Oh, goodness. So for Linda, this caused major vomiting and diarrhea, and it's said that the pills made it hard for her to keep her food in her system for years. So for years, she was basically starving herself. Yeah. So by the time Linda was 18, she realized there were issues and she stopped going to the physician. However, it's believed that the trauma from her, her experience propelled her into the path of restricted dieting. People eventually came to understand that this treatment fucked with her mind, making her think that having an empty stomach was a clean and pure way of living. She perceived it as a way of having self-control with which helped you heal quicker. Mm, Brandon, just to note, your bumblebee mackerel was delivered. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's actually for Kay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Anyways, you're so awkward <laughs> sometimes. So the same year, Linda met 32-year-old Erwin Perry, which they ended up marrying in 1886. Throughout the next few years, Linda and Irwin moved from Fergus, moved to Fergus Falls, Minnesota, and had two children, Roland and Nina. The next bit is a little bit different, and I couldn't find much clarity on what happened, mm-hmm. but there's two different scenarios. So the first one is it's believed that Irwin may have left Linda, disappearing in 1989, never to be seen again. He allegedly 
didn't leave a note. He didn't leave any money and there were no clues. He just up and vanished. And then four years later, Linda ended up filing for divorce by claiming abandonment. She then sent her children to live with her mother and headed over to Minneapolis. So that's one scenario. The second scenario is that it said that Linda decided to leave on her own accord and that she left Irwin and her kids and went to Minneapolis to pursue her career. Either way, Linda moved to Minneapolis to pursue her career, and I have no idea what happened to her children. So it's oh, so it's I also didn't research that. Oh, got it. But then, what about Irwin? Was did he pop up anywhere? Or was he just I didn't. As well? That's all. That's all I was able to find about it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. okay. So either way, whatever happened, she left everybody Linda. and went to Minneapolis. Linda's like one of those names, like uh, where you can be all dramatic, like Linda. What other ones are there? <laughs> you know, sure. Like, um, Gary, Gary, you know, like, yeah, there's or like Larry, Larry. That's what I would Gary. What the I fuck? But she has one of those names like Linda. Sure. Oh, I, you know what it is? It's Bob's Burgers. It is. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm thinking about. Linda okay. Belcher. 1902. She started to get a bit deeper into fasting in her research into it a bit more. She found herself intrigued with the writings of Dr. Edward Hooker Dewey. Dr. Dewey was known for being the uh, pioneer of the therapeutic fasting with his no breakfast plan that he created and alternative medicines. He wrote various books. The most notable was Dewey's The True Science of Living in 1895. Many thought his methods were irrationally extreme and labeled him as a quack, but for Linda, his words resonated with her. Labeled him as a quack. Yeah. So from here, Linda knew what she wanted to do. She decided to open up her own practice, develop her own methods, and help change the world. With a business-focused mind, her ways started to become a hit. So she was actually British, but ended up in Minnesota, where she's... Oh. No. The two women in the beginning, the two sisters were British. She is... Not she was from Uh-oh. Carver. Oh, got it, got it, got it, got it. Got Where okay. Carver, Minnesota, Minnesota. Okay, cool. It ended up becoming a hit. So, advertising fasting as a cure to any disease started. Her method would rid the body of all toxins. Mm. So, she just put out a bunch of advertisements saying this will cure everything. So, now up to this point, you may have noticed that I'm calling Linda by her first name, mm-hmm. and I haven't called her Dr. Linda Hazard, but just a couple times. That's a terrifying name. Dr. Yeah. Linda Hazard. Right. No, thank you. Right. Well, it's intentional that I'm not calling her doctor. Oh. So you may also have noticed that I haven't touched on her medical training at all as yeah. up to this point, right? She's yeah. starting her own practice. So as of right now, Linda is a 35-year-old woman who's starting her practice. So how is she a doctor? What makes this story kind of more awful is that although Linda was considered a doctor, she never actually had a medical degree. She was licensed to practice medicine because of a loophole that grandfathered her and other doctors of alternative medicines without degrees. No. So she was able to practice as a doctor, although she was not a trained doctor. Oh, my God. So continuing on, I thought it was great to understand that none of her methods were based off of medical research, education, or knowledge of the specific topic. It was based off of her own thoughts in what she read from others like Dr. Dewey. Great. So let's also not forget that in the early 1800s, there was only four medical schools. And in between 1810 and 1876, 73 schools opened. So the industry was changing drastically. And schooling was only supposed to be supplemental to an apprenticeship. Apprenticeship? That's more accurate. (laughs) Plus, the FDA wasn't even established until 1906, a few years after she started practicing. Yeah, wow. Linda was able to slide right in and do her own shit. 
Wow. Yeah. So one of her first patients was Gertrude Young, who is a 41-year-old woman who suffered from a stroke that left one of her legs and one of her arms paralyzed. So being unhappy with the diagnosis, which was that she would never get better, and seeing advertisements for this miracle cure, Gertrude decided to inquire more information on Linda's practice. During her initial constellation (laughs) consultation, Linda prescribed her a 40-day fast. Now, Linda's methods were pretty extreme. She believed the path to health was to allow the body to rest for an extended period of time and that rest would help remove toxins from the body. Linda believed that the root of all disease could be managed by food and that too much food was directly related to one's health and the source of all disease was impure blood brought on by impaired digestion. Hmm. So to clarify what her fast included, one, her patients were to boil tomatoes in water to make a vegetable broth no seasonings, only just a little bit of butter, and they were supposed to have one cup two times a day. It eventually grew into asparagus juice and orange juice with very little food. They would have what Linda called a massage. However, it was nothing like a massage. It was basically a way of treating somebody's body by pounding on them, and Linda would pound on their backs, heads, and foreheads. <laughs> it was thought that this would help prevent illness and fight internal illnesses. So no. basically, she would go... And just beat the crap out of people. people. Yeah, there is a type of medical practice. I forgot what it was called. Osseo something that she based this off of, which you don't have to have a medical license for that type of practice. So she just, yeah, she would just take people who aren't eating and beat them. For the third thing on my list out four, they have, they were also tasked with walking as much as they could. So overexerting themselves with no nutrition, Linda told them it would help them purge the poison that filled their bodies. Mm. And the last was they were subject to internal massages. So they were enemas. They started first as 30 minute treatments that eventually grew to be like days long, eight plus hours long treatments with scalding waters. Oh my God, Linda. She would fill you up with hot water, beat the shit out of you and make you not eat. (laughs) She was great. Sorry. So now Gertrude thinking, (laughs) thinking this was a miracle cure decided to go along with it. Within three weeks of her treatment, things started to go south and she couldn't stop vomiting. I mean, yeah. So calling the doctor that treated her in the past, Dr. Eugene Williams, who was shocked to see how frail Gertrude was, and she had pasty yellow sunken in skin, and she was weighing about 105 pounds. Oh my God, I would um, love to weigh 105 pounds. Right? <laughs> Not this way. Just kidding. Demanding that she dropped the fast, she declined. She wouldn't. There was something about Linda's persuasiveness that kept her hook, and this is like a consistent with all of her patients, yeah. something about Linda and the intensity in her, people just stayed they doing just, it. It's, she's like a cult leader. She got them uh-huh, to just absolutely. Like really follow. Yeah. yeah. However, by day 39 of the fast... Day 39 of the 40-day fast, Gertrude died from what appeared to be starvation. Blaming it on her chronic paralysis, Linda denied all of the allegations. She claimed that Gertrude was recovering great, but that she was starting to not follow the plan as directed. However, she said that Gertrude had the pre-existing condition that caused her to die, that no matter what she did, she wouldn't have recovered. So she's basically saying, I didn't do anything. It was something else. Dr. Williams wasn't really having it, though. He tried to pursue legal action, especially hearing that 
Gertrude, before she died, assigned a nurse of Linda as the beneficiary <laughs> to a large amount of her jewelry, and uh, many expensive items of Gertrude's went missing after the death. Oh, shit. Being that there was no laws against fasting in the state of Minnesota, there was no legal grounds, and Linda walked away a free woman to continue to practice, even though the coroner even stated that the reason for her death was starvation. Jesus Christ. After the death, Linda met a man named Samuel Hazard, who was apparently a swindler that had a promising military career that got crushed when he was found misappropriating military funds. He was also considered a drunk that, of course, Linda eventually married because obviously. And so I won't go too much into their backstory because it's not as important to the story. But from what I saw, Sam, he married a woman and then he left her and married a different woman under the name of Hargrave who he was married to when Linda and him got married. So they met, he was already married under a different name and they got married to, he got married to Linda. This caused some issues with the other woman's father who was a Senator and he filed a polygamy charge against Samuel, which he said was not an actual marriage because he gave a false name. So he tried to get out of it by saying that, he that wasn't his real name so he couldn't be married to her and then after showing evidence of their marriage samuel was arrested and sent to jail for two years well samuel. so it had no point of this like to the story but it adds a little bit of something That's interesting yeah. once he got out he ended up stepping right in to help linda with her practice though understanding that the optics of him working there as a felon were kind of odd so they decided to purchase a 40 acre land in olila washington which is roughly across the pungent sound from Seattle. Pugent. It's kind of like Puget. I just said pungent. Puget. <laughs> and I know that. And it was like, it's like diagonally south in the sound. I love Seattle. Yeah, it's great, right? Yeah. So it's here that they would one day open a sanitarium. But until then, they got themselves an office space in downtown Seattle. So throughout this time, Linda was starting to gain traction. There were many patients that swore by her treatments up and down. So this other woman was the first one. She to was. Die. Yeah. So far, she's Ger the only one who's Gertrude. Died. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. But every like she Linda had a bunch of different patients that said that it was great, whatever. Yeah. But up until now, there was only one death. So that all changed between this time and when, when Linda met Dora and Claire. It stated that the prescribed treatments of Linda killed numerous people. So we have Daisy Maud Haglund, H-A-G-L-U-N-D, however you say that. She was a young Norwegian woman who successfully finished her prescribed 50-day fast. However, just shortly after the fast, Daisy ended up dying. The official cause was stomach cancer, mm. which was said would have she would have died regardless because uh, she had an inability to eat due to the cancer. Mm. Um, however, people do blame Linda for this. There was a Ida Wilcox, a Blanche B. Tyndall, Viola Heaton, Eugene Stanley Wakelin, who was a 26-year-old son of a British lord who was found dead as a result from a bullet in the head. It was presumed suicide. However, Linda received power of attorney over Eugene's estate which she was found to be wiring herself money after mm -hmm. his death because she said she needed to pay the rest of his bills oh at the mortuary. And what the fuck? Right? So whether she was responsible for the shooting of Eugene, it's unknown. However, many people believe it was after Linda had an argument once she found out that he wasn't as rich as she believed he was. Wow. Yep. Wow. So then there was a Maud Whitney. There was Earl Edward Erdman, who kept a journal of his care when he was mostly mentions how he ate mashed soup, a couple of oranges, strained soup, the occasional milk, but he also tracked how he felt during the days too. And he mentions how he would, was starting to get dizzy. He had back aches. He started to not be able to sleep and his ribs were hurting and more. Then there was a Frank Southard, 
Ian Flux, who was an Englishman who came to the U.S. who Linda put on a 53-day fast. And it said that Linda gained control of some of his cash and properties, just like with Gertrude. And his family was told that he died with only $70 to his name. And then there was a Lewis Ellsworth Raider. Okay, so now we'll jump back up to when she, she met, met Dora, Dora and Claire. Yeah. So again, they were asking her for help, and she gladly offered to. Excited about the offer, the sisters packed up and went immediately. Not telling any of their friends or family about their plans, they were trying to keep it under wraps because nobody liked their unorthodox medical practices. Sure. So sure. they just wanted to like pass it off and be like, "Oh, well, they, this is they nothing. weren't practitioners, so right there, so that was just like how they lived their life." Yeah. No. They. Yeah. But they. Yeah. People didn't like how they were. They, they just would, kind of their. They did yeah. whatever they wanted to do. Yeah. In February of 1911, the sisters decided to leave British Columbia and head down to Seattle. Within minutes of meeting Linda, they were told that their conditions were quite serious, and she started their treatment right then. A bit confused by the fact that Linda did not perform any physical exams to confirm her sp suspicions, Dora pushed back a bit. Throughout this whole story, from what I saw, Dora was a little bit more apprehensive than Claire. Claire just yeah. like went with it with the response that there was no use in doing any physical examinations until after the fast, until the fast has proceeded for some time. Linda explained her successes and they were on their way, starting on their treatments immediately. So for $60 per month per sister, they would meet Linda five times a week. So this was in today's money, it's about $1,900. They would meet for the brutal massages, the two cups of tomato or asparagus juice. They would overexert their walking and they would get scalding enemas. I can't yeah. get over the scalding enemas. I know. From here, the sisters started to become pretty emaciated. It's even noted by neighbors that they would hear loud screams and wails through the walls. Because don't forget, the sanitarium's not open yet. So they're living in an apartment, which I oh did not God. add in here, but they were living in an apartment. Got that it. Linda gave to them. So the neighbors okay. were hearing loud screams and wails through the walls, um, and they were frightened by the hideous skeleton appearance of the sisters when they saw them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Being engulfed by Linda's treatment, the sisters didn't seem to be too worried when they weren't able to walk without fainting or collapsing. It's also noted that the sisters would start to listen to everything Linda would say, like when she told them not to talk about finances with each other, or when she told them to bring her all of their valuables so she could keep them safe in her office. Oh, God. By the time it hit April 22nd, the sisters roughly were around 70 pounds, and they were transferred to the brand new uh, sanitarium in Olila. And instead of an actual hospital, they went to the sanitarium. It was at the, this moment when Linda saw her next chance to take advantage of the ladies. Linda decided to have her private attorney draft papers up in which she had Claire sign in her delirious state. Mind you, she was also so weak that she could barely move. The papers were, were basically an amendment to Claire's will that stated when she dies that she would leave a stipend of 25 British pounds per year to Linda's sanitarium and that she, if she died, she wanted to have her body cremated under the super supervision, supervision. Oh my lord, <laughs> supervisation, <laughs> supervision. <laughs> Whatever fucking word I want to say right now. Holy shit, it's that supervision, was supervision. <laughs> Shut up. What did you say? I, I don't know. <laughs> under the supervision and direction of Linda. So oh, fuck you, that was funny. <laughs> Shut up. By the end of the same month, things were not getting any better. The sisters' governess, Margaret was back in Sydney, Australia, and she received a short cryptic telegram asking her to come to Washington. It said 
that no one knew who sent the letter, but there's claims that it came from somebody at the property in the, the sanitarium. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so being that it was the early 1900s, she got her things set sail on May 8th and got to Seattle by June 1st. However, it was a little bit too late. So once they arrived, Margaret was told by Linda and Sam that Claire had died and Dora had gone insane. So Margaret was shocked as the ladies who were nowhere near death prior to Linda's care. Asking about what happened to Claire, Linda proceeded to let her know at her autopsy, they discovered that she had cirrhosis of the liver, her blood was powdered, and her internal organs were shrunk. And so this autopsy was also performed by Linda, because Linda liked to do her own autopsies because she could make up other stories. And a lot of the times, she said people had cirrhosis of the liver. Linda asked if Margaret wanted to go see Claire's body a body that was at this point dead for weeks. Linda said that the body was beautifully embalmed. So Margaret was terrified, especially since the embalming process was a newer concept, which nobody believed that Claire, who didn't like medical treatments and all of that stuff, a lot of people didn't believe that Claire would have wanted to be embalmed. Yeah. When Margaret got to the body, she was in shock. She said it was not Claire. The body was wearing all of Claire's clothing, but she said it was physically was not her body. To con- further confuse Margaret, Linda told her that Claire wished to be cremated and have her ashes spread in Olala, all which sounded odd because Claire had never talked about being cremated. And from what she knew, she wanted to be buried in Australia or in England. But just to add in, because I saw this in a couple different places, the embalming process was still really new. And so nobody at the time knew how drastically it could change the look of the body. So it could have been Claire's. It might not have been. We don't know. But from here, Margaret just wanted to go see Dora because Dora was still alive. Being brought to the sanitarium, she saw the state of Dora's frail 60-pound body and got concerned. 60 pounds? Which I think I might mention it later in here, but I believe they went in at like 100 pounds. So at this point, she's lost 40 pounds. And being 100 pounds... Is pretty thin in like general. Six, 60 pound, no, no, yeah. 60 pound, but like that's, that's crazy. Yeah. So at first Dora was begging to leave, but the next day she said she couldn't stating that the cure was doing her a world of good. But let's not forget that many people talked about how scared they were of Linda and her presence was really intimidating. So somehow she got Dora to not want to leave. So Margaret from here started to do anything she could to get Dora help. She moved in where Dora was in the sanitarium and they she would try to sneak her some food to eat so they she tried to bring her rice and flour to add to her intake it's at this time when margaret is at the sanitarium she learned that dora signed over linda as her power of attorney and legal guardianship when margaret said she was leaving with dora linda said she couldn't go and that she would be spending the rest of her time at the sanitarium margaret ended up leaving the property so she could reach out to their closest relative who happened to be in portland and it was their uncle john who happened to see them right before they went to linda's care and he was pissed with what he saw When he got there, he asked what happened. Linda said she would show him. Grabbing a small bag, like a small cloth bag, she opened it up and inside was a stomach, a liver, and some intestines to show him how small they were. Which is disgusting. Linda presented him with basically an offer that if he would pay back the the $2,000 that she said was due for Claire's care, that they wouldn't allow... Dora to leave unless they had the cash. So her uncle ended up negotiating a lower amount to about 900 and got her out. And on July 22nd, Dora was out of there after almost a hundred days. So trying to make 
a quiet release. It got caught on by the press and there was papers that ran photos of Dora, all 60 pounds of her, which is terrifying. And so I might actually put it in the cover art. So apologies. <laughs> so now at this point, Dora got in contact with the British vice council, angry of how the two citizens of his country was treated. They were able to start to build a case. So first they went after the guardianship that Linda had over Dora, uh, which they ended up winning, and it helped open up the case for Claire. Finally, on January 15th, 1912, Linda Hazard went to trial after a month-long investigation. Luckily for the sisters, Dora was able to take the stand and speak her truth because Dora does not die. Dora ends up living. Love that for Dora. For all of this. So she ended up testifying and went into great detail telling her story. She talked about the painful procedures and the lack of food and how it affected them. So then on February 4th, Linda ended up being found guilty of manslaughter and was sentenced between two and 20 years at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington. Then on December 19th, 1915, only being in prison for less than two years... Oh, I didn't even finish my sentence here. Um, <laughs> she got released. I totally took Bless out a whole section. But after less than two years, she was released. Jesus she, yeah. Christ. So shortly after that, Governor Ernest Leister, L-Y-S-T-E-R. I'm just going to pronounce a spell Leister. it every time I don't know. Ernest um, Leister. He granted Linda a pardon under the condition that she left the U.S., so she did just that. She packed up and moved to New Zealand, and Linda restarted her practice oh and started Lord, all over again. Uh, and so after five years, Linda ended up coming back to Washington. I don't, I didn't see anything talking about how she was able to come back, but she came back to Washington and repurchased the sanitarium, where she eventually stood trial again for another death. This time, though, although she was found guilty, she only had to pay a fine of a hundred dollars. <laughs> You kill a person, oh you pay a fine. Okay. Linda ended up continuing to practice up until 1935 when a fire broke out and destroyed the property. By the time Linda was 70, she got very ill. Deciding that her way was the only correct way, she followed her own procedures, only eating broth, external and internal massages, and more. And then finally, on June 24th, 1938, Linda died from starvation. What I do love is that she died from her <laughs> it own It came shit. full circle. Yeah, but... It came complete full circle. I know. I just... It's so interesting. I guess you got to put yourself in... Like, I don't like... Do I don't like doctors to look at all, which is why I haven't been to the doctor in like six years. Ooh, which is probably not... It hasn't been that long. I think it's been that long. But... <laughs> shake your head, you fucking <laughs> asshole. It wasn't. <laughs> we were living it? in Tampa. Oh. Yeah, that we haven't been. I mean, that's not true because I've gotten like sick and have been to the yes. doctor, but I haven't gotten like a physical. I haven't got my balls played with and coughed. Oh, Kevin, <laughs> I've never gotten them played with quite like that. But still, like you know, when you have to go to the doctor and you, <clears throat> if a doctor is playing with your balls, you the doctor has never played with my. I just probably not a good thing. Oh my god. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> but I feel like I would never let like I would not have followed that procedure because it shouldn't be that painful. Yeah. I don't know. That's well. Crazy, no, but... I mean you shouldn't be fasting for that long. You, your body yeah. can't sustain life. Like I, I was at the doctor for that epiploic appendagitis or whatever when we were speaking of Seattle when yeah. we were in Seattle, and they wanted to give me all that medication, and I said no. But it was just pain management medication. Like if if it was life saving, whatever. Then well, of I mean course, that's but... that, that goes into a whole different topic of opioid crises in the U.S. Well, <laughs> it's a whole different story. We'll be visiting that shortly. But anyway, keep oh, going. Geez. All right. So I have some interesting facts. It said that Linda has killed at least 15 people and she wrote three, she wrote for, I read three different books, but then I saw something that said more, but she at least wrote the book fasting for the cure of disease that the sisters read. 
that you could still find on Amazon oh my God. for $31.95 hardcover. Who's getting that I thought was really interesting. And some of her other books are on Amazon too, which I just is crazy. This one book has a quote in it that says, Appetite is craving, hunger is desire. Craving is never satisfied, but desire is relieved when want is supplied. Huh. Which like totally confuses the yeah. shit out of me, but yeah. I liked the way it was written. Sure. It was known by the people in the community how awful Linda's treatments were. Some in the community called the sanitarium Starvation Heights. In the Seattle Daily Times once had a headline that read, Woman MD kills another patient. There was a, a dentist that was near her office that she would sell the patients whose died's gold teeth for extra profit. It just, I mean, she got it where she could. She was just, she was like getting on, she was monetizing every aspect of this. She absolutely was. It's alleged that the night Claire died, that Dora was worried and tried to make her way over to Claire. Linda, for some reason, kept them separate. However, it was probably done so that they felt isolated and didn't get concerned for each other. So they stayed sick. So when Dora tried to talk to Claire, Linda got mad. Linda then asked Claire if, if she wanted another treatment and without moment's notice, Linda pummeled Claire in the stomach. After a cry from Claire, her eyes rolled in behind her head and she died. So that's actually how she died. Ew, I hate Linda. Right? Fuck you, Linda. And then it's noted that after Claire died, Linda started to wear all of Claire's clothing and jewelry. Sam also went to the bank with a money order that was signed for Claire, signed from Claire to Linda for $1,000. Man, this is crazy. That's yeah. crazy. That's Fraud and murder. Never, never literally heard of that. Right? I thought it was interesting. I mean, there's so it was. It's the least gory story I think yeah, I've had so not, far. But it's pretty, it's just, it's awful, but it also goes into like the impact that cult leaders oh yeah or or people can really convince others to self-harm so heavily it's kind of what i've always thought about our former president and, and like everything that's going on right there is yep. like how can people be this engulfed stupid ingrained yeah and yep. like listen to these things that are blatantly obvious it. yeah that are not true and still follow along. It's just, it's it's crazy to me. It it's is. crazy. Same can be said about like even this attack on LGBTQ on how they're using this idea of indoctrination and all this kind of stuff. But all in the headlines, you literally see for like pastors getting arrested for child, yeah. you know, <gasps> it makes me insane. Yeah. This world's a great but, place. Yeah. Wow. She was a fasting specialist. She was a fasting asshole. Yeah. Fuck you, Linda. Fuck you, Linda. Never trust a Linda unless you're a listener. Then we love you, Linda. Linda. <laughs> unless you're Linda Belcher because she's great. Are you is ready it, for yours? Is it my turn? It's all. It's so your turn. Uh, there it was. Okay. Thank you. I'm ready. For episode six, Doctors That Kill, the name of my story is Harold. You're a butt licker. Oh. <laughs> Does he like to lick mm. patients' butts? He, may, he might have. Gross. I don't know, but <laughs> I'm calling him a butt licker. Okay. Anyway, not that butt lickers are... Like, if you like to lick butts, like you, it's your prerogative, it's okay. right? Yeah, do your thing. We support yeah. everyone here. Clean it first. Okay, so Harold, you fucking yeah. butt licker. Yeah, butt okay. licker, tell us. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, so now I'm going, okay, I kind of liked how you were telling your stories, and so I'm going to kind of mirror. Oh, you're going to steal from me. Basically. Earlier, so. you told me I couldn't create my own title I because that's your thing. not. I did do that. We and have a team of people who saw you it. You cannot... <laughs> Be telling people these secrets. Oh, but you can't. You know why? Because everyone doesn't get to know this version of you where I'm actually like pretty much Just always an asshole this. all the time. But they don't really get to see my sassiness. You. And so they're all like, Branson, you're so funny and you're so funny. And so you can't take something from me. 
Because you already kind of own everything because okay. you're like the fun one. All right. Okay. So you just have to have everything. Okay. Sharing's not caring here, guys. Whatever. Okay. So picture it. Very Golden Girls here. Yes. No. It was the morning of June 24th, 1998, when Kathleen Grundy opened the door to her adorable little British cottage to welcome in her doctor, whom she respected and trusted deeply, for a routine blood test. Upon entering... Both chatted before the doctor unpacked his equipment from his medical bag. Kathleen, known to be a very happy and talkative individual, was vibrant, energetic, and smiled a lot. So she welcomed her doctor into her home for her appointment and just like really truly admired him and trusted him for some reason. That's like actually why she sought him out. And she was like this 81-year-old woman. Kathleen sat at the ready as the doctor selected a needle and wiped her arm and prepped to draw blood. Right? So picture it. She's at her cute little British cottage, you know, very Harry Potter. She's like, yes, doctor. Very um, Harry Potter. Sure. Is that it's the like, only reference like the only that, thing that I can think of? Even though I've been to like the UK a was lot. Was she sitting in the cupboard underneath the <laughs> stairs? She was. A few hours later after her appointment, Kathleen failed to show up to her pensioners luncheon club. So two of her colleagues actually went to her home to check on her. So Kathleen, who was an 81-year-old widow, who was known to be quite active, they're actually, they they noted that she was fit as a fiddle, was found dead. It's such an old person thing to say, <laughs> fit as a fiddle. But she was found dead, fully clothed, and lying on her sofa in her sitting room. So the two immediately called her doctor, who had just seen her hours before, who returned, gave her a cursory once-over, and pronounced her dead, later certifying cursory? that her cause of death. Yeah, he like did a once-over just quick. I think cursory means like just visual. Yeah. But anyway, he pronounced her dead, later certifying that her death was caused due to old age. So. I mean, she was old, but I'm assuming that's not what happened. She wasn't that old. 81 is not. It's not that I mean, old. It's, 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 it's older, up there, right? Yeah. What was a routine visit to draw blood just hours before was in actuality a routine visit to murder the doctor's latest victim. Instead of drawing blood from Kathleen, the doctor instead pumped her with a lethal dose of morphine, killing her just hours later. That's rude. And she was the last of more than 200 <gasps> victims. This is the story of Dr. Harold Shipman, Butlicker, a highly <laughs> respected general practitioner who will forever be known as a Dr. Death, the Angel of Death, and the Good Doctor. And now the Butlicker. Butt <laughs> Angel of Death, that's awful. I know. Isn't that's that? very but also, like, dramatic. The Good Doctor, this mother, he ain't good. Right? There's no good there. No. I mean, if you're no. killing people, no, but... I know. Poor little Kathleen Grundy. Oh. Here's what's really interesting, and I and I always love to dive into the... Which, realistically, killers always have, like, this expose on them, regardless. Like, we know a lot about the killer, but not as much about, like... Yeah, the, you know, the, the victim. Yeah. That's but, why I like to add as much as I can to mine, yeah. too. So his name was Harold Frederick Shipman, also known as Fred, Mr. Fred. Oh, Fred. <laughs> was born... Fred's um, one of those names. It is one of those names. <laughs> like Linda... Hey, Fred. Linda and Fred, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Linda and Fred. Fuck you. Butt lickers. Okay. So Fred was, uh, so Harold Shipman uh, was born into a working class family in Nottingham, England on January 14th, 1946 to Vera and Harold Shipman. His father was a truck driver, which I think has zero significance, <laughs> but it was there. So, so I you added, added it. Why not? <laughs> so his parents were devout Methodists. That's it. That's where it was. That's where well, we fucked up. Yep. Yeah, everything starts with religion. <laughs> I know. So Harold was born the middle and favorite child to his mother, Vera. And Why are the middle ones always the favorite? I don't know. I mean, mine wasn't. 
Palma and Wayne, I know you're watching. I know my sister's the favorite. <laughs> Which Val is a listener. And so she's she gonna be like, Brandon, fuck you. Right. I love Val. <laughs> but she is the middle child. She is. And yeah. The favorite. My middle sister is, I would venture to say, maybe not some people's favorites. I like her and think she's fabulous. But I also was kind of the middle child when I got adopted and <laughs> not a favorite. No. At all. <laughs> I think my adopted mom would love to see me murdered. <laughs> Don't murder me, though. Anyway, so. It's awful. <laughs> it's probably Drew. The last time I talked to her, she called me Vile. Yeah. I also called her Vile. Uh, Harold ended up being the uh, his mom's favorite child. So from a young age, she instilled a sense of superiority in him. That eventually led to him being like quite isolated, and he had very few friends. Yeah. So uh, something about him being her favorite and she just like gave him this complex. And so people just didn't really like him. His mother was uh, actually di diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. And what's interesting about this is that he actually willingly oversaw her care. He was under 18, but he uh, willingly oversaw her care as she declined. And he actually became fascinated with death, her treatment <laughs> for pain, which like treatment for pain relief. Yes. So basically they would give her morphine and he really foreshadowing. loved foreshadowing. Uh, he really loved the effects, the positive effects that it had on his. Well, that's something mom. to be interested on, isn't it? It's interesting, right? It's weird. I know. So his mother ends up dying on June 21st of 1963. She was only 42. He was only oh. 17. Oh my gosh. Pretty young age to lose your mom yeah. in general. And pretty young to die. Yeah. And there's like really no <laughs> notes about his dad. Like at all, because he was just out driving trucks all the time. Um, <laughs> he was probably just never around, I guess. So Harold obviously was devastated by his mother's death. And as a result, uh, he was like determined to go to medical school. Two years later, he was admitted to Leeds University Medical School, but he did fail. Well, even though he failed his entrance exam the first time he ended up getting in, but he also ended up receiving like a scholarship oh. to go to medical to go to medical school. So that's probably the wrong decision. Uh, thank you. <laughs> During his first year in medical school, he was 19. He ended up meeting his future wife, Primrose Ox to be Ox to be and a Primrose, which by the way, isn't this from the hunger games? Like wasn't her Primrose? sister named Primrose. Yeah. I have not heard it since then. Like at all, but yeah. apparently it's a thing. So they met on a bus. I don't know why I put that in there, but I think that that's it was like how like, many people meet on a bus. Just uh, like when you're riding on a bus, are you like, hello? Hi, my name's Brandon. Who are you? Where are you from? Can we date? Right. I don't know. Listen, who, I mean, that was before there was dating apps and you said the That's 80s? True. Oh no, this was in 1960. It's in the 1960s. Oh, it yeah. was in the, the beginning part of the story was in the mm -hmm. 80s. Yeah. Well, but still there was no phones. There was no, no. apps to meet up. On. No, I mean, it's the 60s, right? It was Where else are you going to meet? I think the bus sounds like a great And place. really, it was like the era of love. So maybe they were just like, hey, you want to suck my dick? Oh. And she was like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what they did then. But I don't know it was that. Probably but... <laughs> not that. <laughs> you should ask your parents. <laughs> just kidding. He meets Primrose. At 20, Harold ends up getting her pregnant. And because of that, it says, it, I read that both sets of parents forced them to marry. Primrose was actually only 17. Oh. What's interesting about that is like both sets of parents. Well, his mom was already dead and dad was like driving a truck. So I'm assuming that it was just Primrose's parents that were like, yeah. uh, you're pregnant, get married. Yeah. Harold eventually had a total of four kids, Sarah, Christopher, Frederick Shipman, David Shipman, and Sam Shipman. 
with that, if you see a picture of Harold, he looks like any bearded grandpa. Like he just looks like a normal zaddy. Zaddy. Yeah. <laughs> normal little zaddy. Normal ducta zaddy. So 1970, Shipman actually graduated and started work at the Pontefract General Infirmary in Pontefract, West Riding of Yorkshire. In 1974, Shipman actually ended up joining a medical practice as a general practitioner at the Abraham or Orm Irad Medical Center in Todmorden, West Yorkshire. Words are hard. They are hard, especially <laughs> British ones. So he actually became like a family practitioner. He was a general practitioner, but at this specific job, he was known as like a family practitioner. He did, actually did very well. But at this specific place, you know, this is 1974, he became very addicted to a painkiller called Pethidine. And um, so 1975, he was caught forging prescriptions for large amounts of this Pethidine for his own use. And he was actually forced to leave the practice uh, when he was caught by his medical colleagues. So I know he he ended up having to pay 600 600 pounds as a fine, but then also uh, went into rehab. So not, I feel like you should lose your medical license for something Thank like that. you. So he didn't. He eventually spent a brief period as a medical officer for Hatfield College in Durham and temporarily worked for the National Coal Board. So in 1977, just a few years later, he eventually found another job and was accepted onto the staff at Donnybrook Medical Center in Hyde, Greater Manchester, <laughs> where he became known as a hardworking doctor. He actually stayed there through the 1980s. It's just weird that with that on his record. Well, and I wonder, like, it, what, it, what did records look like at that point? Right, like, like what did you have it? to write, like, yes, know. I've... Yeah. It's just weird. I know. So, anyway, he ended up staying there through the 1980s. His patients and colleagues, like, trusted him severely. But his junior staff did say that he was quite arrogant. I mean, general. it sounds like he would yeah. be. In 1983, he was actually interviewed by the Granada television documentary, World in Action. And on that, he actually spoke about how mentally ill, how the mentally ill should be treated in the community, which I kind of wanted to go in and like watch that real fast. But then when I read that, I was like, oh, Granada. And it reminded me of when I was in high school in anatomy and I wanted to like take that program in Granada, um, in Granada <laughs> and like wasn't allowed to. <laughs> because my adopted parents like getting divorced and it's a whole mess, but it goes back into the trauma. <laughs> anyway, that's for another story, that's maybe we'll next episode, maybe you'll hear that story on Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> Patreon is just going to be all about our personal life stories. <laughs> yes, only our personal trauma. We will yes. explain. Let's dive into each trauma now. Um, why am I so fucked up? Jesus. Why? Maybe it was the time I was walking upstairs and my adopted mom threw a box down at me and called me Ross. Oh, I know. Crazy. There's some crazy shit. Just wait. Okay. Anyway, eventually his violent mood swings made the partnership untenable. I don't know if that's the right word to say. Untenable? Untainable? No, it's not unattainable. I think it's untenable. I don't know. Anyway, it got it got shitty. Like, All right. These are your notes. I know. I know. And then I'm like, why did I write that word down? Like I could it really was probably say like that. I know. Yeah, motherfucker. <laughs> 1992, 1993, he ended up setting his up, up his own practice, his own surgery that they call it on Market Street. Everything was seemingly okay until Nope, that was the wrong one. <laughs> what are you trying What's to this do? one? There it is. Everything you were looking fine. for the chirp? And it, no, everything was fine until <laughs> suspicion arose. Wait, everything was fine until <laughs> suspicion arose. No, that doesn't work either. Let me try that again. Everything was fine until dot, 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 suspicion arose. <laughs> so <laughs> in, in March 
1998. So look at that. We this wasn't we even that nine, long ago. Like we were actually wasn't that long ago. Around it was like eighth grade or something. So there was a Dr. Linda Reynolds of the Brick Surgery in Hyde, which she was prompted by Deborah Massey from Frank Massey. It was basically I totally repeated this word, but she was from Frank Massey and Son's Funeral Parlor. Dr. Linda Richards, prompted by Deborah Massey, expressed concerns to John Pollard, who was the coroner for South Manchester District about the high death rate among shipments patients. Mm -hmm. So at this point in 1998, he had like a pretty high list of patients that were just like, like his death rate was quite high. Well, I mean, at that point, they have to track everything. So yeah, but Um, is nobody like really keeping track of that? Well, so she actually reached out because she was concerned primarily at the high number of cremation forms for elderly Mm. women specifically that had needed countersign. No. So she suspected that Shipman was killing his patients, but not in the sense of like they were, he was purposely killing them, but like some kind of malpractice, like he was doing something wrong. Yeah. Something. But why so, would he be having such a high you'll rate? See. Of, uh, so the, this suspicion was actually reported to I'm not police. I like that, aren't I? No. This suspicion was reported to, to the police who were unable to find sufficient evidence to bring charges. So this was March 1998. By April 17th, 1998... The police abandoned the investigation, and Shipman was just free. He was just free to roam. So they had suspicions, and then they were just like, okay. Yeah, so basically these other medical professionals reported him, and then the police opened an investigation, but they were like, everything looks fine. So there was nothing to be found? No. Well, (laughs) yes. They just didn't do a thorough investigation in general, they were like, no, this is a respected man. Like, his well, records if, seem to be okay. But why is it always like that? It's like when we were talking about the police at one time with yeah. a missing person. It's like, well, does it doesn't matter was, if they're a respected no. person. And in fact, I would venture to say that sometimes this is probably more accurate. That people, like, he was a white, male, yes. wealthy doctor, well-respected. Well, so, how could he murder someone? Uh, how could someone? he be doing this to people? Right. He's not yeah. the type of person to murder anyone. Correct. But here we are. Just like I was saying about like these fucking people attacking our community, but really these are pastors across the United States are fucking kids. Yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> the murders. So this brings me back to You always opening. do this like shoulder shrug. <laughs> the murders. <laughs> I do. You're so gay. <laughs> shimmy, shimmy. We really should not have this board. This no, is I, literally, Anna's going to be like, don't fucking touch it right? again. I mean, I bought the board, but still. <laughs> Okay, Brandon, this brings me to our opening, June 24th, 1998, the death of Kathleen Grundy. Oh, R.I.P. Kathleen. Okay, so what was interesting about this time is that after he pronounced her dead and all that kind of stuff, Grundy's daughter, her name was Angela Woodruff, was actually a lawyer, and she's actually who always handled her mother's affairs. So keep that in mind. She actually ended up growing concerned because all of a sudden a solicitor, Brian Burgess, informed her that a different will had been made by her mother that excluded her and her children, but left the bulk of her mother's estate to Shipman. This sounds familiar. I know. What's interesting, though, is that Angela had the will, had everything done because she handled all of her mother's affairs. Yes. So... That said, that actually raised some pretty, you know, big doubts to, um, at the authenticity of the will. Yeah. So Angela actually ended up telling this Burgess guy, please, like, please report this, go to the police. And uh, so he ended up doing that. And so an investigation was actually opened by Detective Superintendent Bernard Postalis. Bernard is one of those names. Bernard. Yeah, that reminds <laughs> me of the Santa Claus. It does. Bernard. It yeah. does. <laughs> Bernard 
hostless quickly came to the same conclusion that Angela did. And that was that that will was not actually it was a real legitimate. Yeah. So that's shady. I know on August 1st, 1998, Kathleen Grundy's body was actually exhumed and examined. So they buried her in the middle. Got her yeah, right back so I'll up. dive into this a little bit more. But for the most part, people were cremated. Yeah. At the direction of their doctor. Yeah, that's weird. This one was a you little bit You can't really different. prescribe cremation. <laughs> I know. It's really weird. <laughs> Kathleen was not. So she was actually exhumed and examined, which actually found traces of diamorphine, morphine, concluding that she actually died of a morphine overdose that was administered within three hours of her death, which is exactly when Dr. Shipman had visited her. Was there. Yeah. So don't so, be suspicious. Don't, don't be, be suspicious. <laughs> don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. I should have been in that. I agree. Just kidding. I will be one day. Those are fabulous humans. I also, think I think that they went to UCB. Anymore? Well, no, but I meant something with them. Yeah. Those humans. Because if we have not already established, I'm also an actor. Are you? I am. Actually, I think our last episode, it was still during the SAG strike. So the SAG strike is over. Yay. Which I'm really happy about. I'm really glad that we held on for so long as well. But it's my first year joining SAG, so it's not like I know that much. But <laughs> also excited to get back to work and, and be in more shite. So, more shite. Yeah. Anyway, so I just said that like they had said, okay, this morphine was administered within yeah. three hours of her death. And so that's exactly when Shipman had visited her. So because of that, this actually caused this investigation to like really kickstart. So they actually ended up raiding Shipman's home and found a lot of medical records that were in his home, an odd collection of jewelry, and an old typewriter. Oh, the typewriter's interesting because the will. Oh, it was typed. Was out. doctored on a specific typewriter. That typewriter got its evidence. Was found in his home. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you say it like that? so? I'm a storyteller. Suspense. Brandon. I know. I'm a storyteller. <laughs> I'll dive into the medical records at, in a little bit, but they were also virtual medical records as well. Because in 1998, you know, and, and certainly someone of his status would have had a computer at that point. And this was his own practice. So yeah. with that, fingerprint analysis of the forged will actually showed that Grundy, Kathleen, had never actually handled the will at all. Her hand, her hand prints were not on it. And which realistically, if it was her will, she would be touching it. Correct. A handwriting expert also concluded that her signature was a forgery. What's really interesting about this, and I didn't put it in her, but within the research, a few weeks prior to this, Kathleen had gone to see this doctor to my Shipman had went to go see Dr. Shipman to talk about, you know, something, I think something with her ears, something with her ears, I think. In that moment, he was like, oh, hey, this is what you need to do. I need your signature, though, so I'm going to get two people to come witness your signature. Those two people in the lobby came and witnessed the signature. She just did it on some envelope. That's odd that she would just be like, okay, yeah, let me just sign. Yeah, let me give you a my signature you my on or whatever. And it had to do something with like something with a, a surgery that she was maybe having to have on her ears. I can't remember exactly what it was, but he had gotten her signature from that and then had these two people witness with their signatures. What he ended up doing was forging the will, having the two signatures of the witnesses put onto it and her signature as well. And so even the witnesses didn't sign it. So it's just a whole. Oh, that's mess. real fucked up. The fi- no, fi- none of her fingerprints. They determined. Okay, this is a forgery. So like, that's the- thoughtful. It is. It's calculated. Yeah, it's very so, calculated. So uh, the medical records alone told the investigators as they kind of dived into all of these medical records. It actually told the investigators that this specific case was one of likely many, and that Kathleen's death was actually a part of a much larger investigation. Well, yeah, I mean, even just right there, it's very <clears throat> planned. That sounds very thought thought out. So, yeah. well, and yeah, these medical records showed 
a significant amount of people dying following a visit from him, but also having been cremated too. Yeah. So September 7th, 1998, Shipman was arrested. So June 24th, 1998, he goes to Kathleen Grundy's house, injects her with all this morphine. She dies. And then by, what is that, September of that same year, he's arrested. So why the will? There's actually been a book by journalist Brian Whittle and Jean Ritchie called Prescription for Murder that actually reports two theories on why Shipman forged the will. Because in his history of killing, he had actually never done this. Ever. Oh, that's interesting. And it's the thing that caught it is, Yeah. They actually said that their theories are, one, he wanted to be caught because his life was kind of out of control. Or two, he planned to retire at 55 and leave the country. Oh. It's like the only two reasons why they were like, this is... Those are two very different... They are very, <laughs> very different, right? But they're like, these are... The I want to run away and get away with it. Yeah. So... I just want to <laughs> be caught and put in prison like sure. that. Yeah. That's kind of the next thing that Shipman had never before attempted to profit from his killings. This was the first. Well, he was time also he tried a doctor, it. so he obviously made money regardless. Correct. Yeah. Which and he owned his own practice, yeah. so I'm sure that he was, you know, taking his dividends. Yeah, it's not like he needed it. Yeah. All right. The arrest and trial. So the murder of Kathleen Grundy in 1998 was ultimately what led to Harold's crimes finally being discovered. Although the police had dropped the investigation in April of that same year, because they dropped the investigation in that same year, his last three victims may not have been killed had they actually pursued the oh, investigation. That's shitty. So he ended up killing three more people during that time, which is shite. His trial actually began on October 5th of 1999 in Preston Crown Court. And it was presided over by Mr. Justice Forbes. So he was actually charged with 15 murders, as well as forging Kathy, uh, Kathleen Grundy's will. So they, they, this number is much higher, but here's the 15 victims that he was actually charged for murdering. Like in general, that it was only these 15. <laughs> only these 15, it. yeah. And the will. Marie West, Irene Turner, Lizzie Adams, Jean Lilly, Ivy Lomas. Muriel Grimshaw, Marie Quinn, Kathleen Wagstaff, Bianca Pomfret, Nora Natal, Pamela Hillier, Maureen Ward, Winifred Mellor, Joan Malia, and Kathleen Grundy. And each of these victims actually has kind of a story of like their their final kind of moment of how he basically killed them, which I found to be very interesting, which they yep. got from all of his medical records and shit. As well as like you know testimony from victims' families, so I'm actually gonna uh, I put a note here that I am going to put this link from the Manchester Evening News into our episode description on YouTube yeah. because I actually think that you guys should dive in and just kind of see because the list is quite like 15. This episode would be longer than the hour and a half that it probably is going to be, <laughs> so I didn't include it, but I will put that into our episode description and oh, I that's definitely go check it out because yeah. it's interesting to kind of see his pattern of of killing and, and what he did in the way that he did it. Yeah. So police actually established that Shipman would alter medical notes directly after killing a patient to ensure his account matched the historical records. In the case of his first victim, Kathleen, he actually said that she was <laughs> abusing cocaine or abusing some kind of a drug that looks like morphine postmortem. And so oh, okay. he like went in and like shifted and changed it. it. Yeah. Shipman didn't realize his charges uh, or his changes to his medical records would be time stamped on the computer that he used. So it would always show that he would <laughs> update and change shit after somebody had died. Yeah. That's not a good luck. I know additional exhumations and autopsies took place leading to additional charges, which is how we got these other 15 people that he had killed in there as well. Again, go read that in the description. 
But during the trial, victim accounts actually showed that he had a severe lack of compassion and would disregard the wishes of attending relatives and had a severe reluctance to attempt to revive patients. Oh, he just did, he just wanted people to die. Yeah, he just wanted people to die. So Shipman urged families, which is what I said earlier, Shipman urged families to cremate their relatives in large uh, in a large number of his, of his cases, stressing that no further investigation of the death was necessary. And if that's your that's doctor weird. telling you that. Yeah, but that's still weird that a doctor would tell you that. It is, but a lot of people would just do it. Yeah. Which is interesting. So I know January 31st, 2000, this is after six days of deliberation, the jury found Shipman guilty of killing 15 patients by lethal injections of diamorphine and forging the will of Kathleen Grundy. He actually ended up being sentenced to 15 consecutive life sentences and received four years for the forging of the will. Of his victims, and these are not two of the 15, and I'll tell you how many there were, his youngest known victim was Peter Lewis, who was 41, to which he was not charged and convicted. His oldest victim was Annie Cooper, 93, to which he was not charged and convicted. So when he was convicted, the judge recommended him never to be released. There were no survivors. Not one person survived him at all. Like he had no patients that came out and was like, none. I went through him and he, I was fine. Nope, none. But so, he only focused on the elderly. Not elderly, but older. No, it was typically the elderly or... So if um, they die, so oh, they're it's their old. Yeah, so it was like terminal people and elderly people, but it was actually more women. Most were older women who he killed in their own homes by injecting them with a lethal, lethal dose of diamorphine, medical-grade heroin, basically. So most victims were in good health and of an older age. So when Shipman certified their deaths, the cause was often registered as dying due to old age. Here's so of course like, he would have a lot of deaths. No. I am actually glad because i when you said the uh that most of the female patients were cremated i was hoping it wasn't because he had like raped or molested them and that yeah, he wanted no. to burn any kind of evidence yeah that wasn't anything at all My mind wasn't, right there it was like, interesting because that. it wasn't like a uh, you know i mean who knows why people kill but i know that there's oftentimes like a sexual gratification and there was none of that for this like at all i think that he had a god actually it goes into a little bit more but i think he had a god complex and wanted this control over life and death for people yeah. and thought that he was the one to administer yeah, it. Because, I mean, why not? Why, yeah. why shouldn't it be him? So gross. So anyway, he murdered his victims quietly, coldly, and systematically and ended his patient's life in a severe betrayal of trust. And think about yeah. the oath that doctors take. Like, he really betrayed that in general because all of these people are thinking that somebody's healing them and he's killing them. Yeah, that's fucking awful. <laughs> His motives actually remain a complete mystery because he would never confess to why or even that he did anything wrong. Oh, that's really fucked up. Yeah. So like you kill that many people. You could, <clears throat> you should at least say like, give mm -hmm. people some kind of understanding. Something like you're. Yeah. So anyway, he remember he had four kids yeah. and his wife. So they were all given new identities after the trial. <laughs> On February 11th of 2000, the General Medical Council formally struck Shipman off its register. So he lost his medical license, obviously. <laughs> Took um, long enough. <laughs> so Shipman actually consistently denied his guilt and disputed the scientific evidence against him. He never made any statements about his actions ever. His wife, Primrose, actually stood by him throughout the entire travel or travel, the entire trial and continued writing him love letters when he was locked up. She actually stayed committed to him the entire time through, which I thought was really interesting. So after his trial, which was September 1st, 2000, the shipment inquiry started, which was chaired by the high court judge, Dame Janet Smith. I think it's called, I think you say Dame, D-A-M-E. 
interesting. <laughs> anyway, they investigated all deaths certified by shipment throughout his career. 80% of his victims were women, which is crazy. So the shipment inquiry... I wonder if it's like some weird sick thing about his mother. Uh, okay, thank you. So I think so. I mean, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, and I think that that's where he got this God complex to be like, I can handle people's whatever. I don't think that he did it out of empathy. I think that he legitimately liked killing people and deciding who got to live and die. Yeah. But ultimately, I do think that it was probably spawned by that experience with his mom, the way that she treated yeah. him, but then also watching... It's that, like some yeah. Mormon bait shit. It's weird. I know. So the shipment inquiry actually is uh, ended up being a 2,000-page report and concluded that it was likely that Shipman had murdered, at the very least, 218 of his patients. That's, that's and insane. And that he became addicted to killing. So uh, what's interesting about this case specifically is that much of Britain's legal structure concerning healthcare and medicine was reviewed and modified as a direct and indirect result of Shipman's crimes. Well, uh, I mean, especially. That makes sense. After the findings of the shipment inquiry, which was led by that judge dame, Janet Smith. How did they not get it charged on the other ones? Because they didn't. Not enough they, evidence. No, actually, that was some of it. But they were like, I mean, he's already serving 15 life sentences. Like, yeah. there's no reason to pursue and dollars on it. Yeah. Dame Janet Smith, a judge, is quoted as saying, I think the nearest I can get to explaining what motivated him was that I think that he felt he knew best when it was time for somebody to die. I suppose in a way it made him compare himself to God. So there was also so a, a, BC, a, a so BBC gross. documentary called The Shipman Files. There was a psychologist named Dr. David Holmes that was on that, and he actually told the BBC that Shipman thought he was a god. So he was quoted as saying, he saw no one as being superior to him in his own mind, in his own eyes. He was some sort of medical god. That's so disgusting. gross. I wanted to put this in here because I think that this is really valuable to add. Because I think when people think of like, oh, yeah, yeah okay, so they, he killed them with morphine. It must have, they just must have fell asleep. That is not the case. Death by opioid overdose, specifically morphine. Sure, it can be like somebody you know, kind of goes, but it's not easy. It's not. So the symptoms are constricted pupils, rapid or slow heartbeat, confusion, feeling faint or actually fainting, constipation, nausea, spasms of the stomach or intestinal tract, vomiting, low blood pressure, weak pulse, possible seizures, visual or auditory hallucinations, muscle stiffness, dry mouth, difficulty to no breathing. Oh my gosh. So if you think about that, I think that this has been depicted in several films where you see somebody ODing. That's and what these people experience. Yeah. No, that it sounds Fucked exactly up. what it And is. imagine being like, what the fuck is happening? Right. And, you, and you're sitting there being like, I was just injected by my doctor. And now I'm. Yeah. Let me try to, tag. let me try to call him real quick. There is one thing that I. He is a butt licker. He is a butt licker. Uh, <laughs> I told him. There is a couple things that I missed in here, which I think is worth saying. I told you that he would urge families to create their cremate their relatives. So he would also, in moments of somebody like dying, he would pretend to call emergency services in the presence of relatives, then would cancel the call when the patient was discovered to be dead. So his telephone records showed zero calls ever being made. Oh, that's fucked up. To emergency services. That's fucked up, especially in front of the family. Like, mm -hmm. that's some... Yeah. So there was also evidence of his drug hoarding. <laughs> he would falsely prescribe patients morphine who didn't need it, then over-prescribe patients who did, and then he would collect the unused drugs from his deceased patients. So he had, like, a whole bunch it of... It was very morphine. methodical. He knew yeah. what he was doing. Yeah. He had yeah. it planned. Such a fucking butt licker. <laughs> okay, Harold's death because the motherfucker died. Interestingly enough, I told you that his wife Primrose kind of stood by him throughout the entire time, whatever. He ended up moving to this other prison. And, Did she believe him that um, he yeah, didn't do yeah, it? Yeah, they all stood by him the entire time. 
which is crazy. Now they all have which I feel like is whatever. And one of his kids is like your is a little bit younger than your brother. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I feel like it doesn't matter what you do if you are doing that. If you're, mm-hmm. if you've killed that many people, I don't feel like you should have anybody around no, you. Oh, uh, fuck you. I, I don't think you have good in you, regardless no. of what you've Agreed. else you've done in your life. January thirteenth, two thousand four, middle of the night. Shipman, who was living in his jail cell, meticulously crafted a noose out of his bed sheets, which he tied to the window bars of his cell, hanging himself and killing himself. This actually happened one day before his 58th birthday, and just four years into his prison sentence. And it's said that he may have done this because had he reached the age of 60, the money that he would have gotten, which went to his wife, would have been a lot less. So they said that he may have killed himself so that his wife could benefit from more money. Before his death, a lot of his privileges had been taken away, which mean he meant he could no longer call his wife from prison. I read that somewhere. But Shipman, to this day, happens to be the only British doctor to ever have been convicted of murdering his patients. There's been other oh, cases, but he's the only one. That's been actually convicted. Yeah, which I found to be really interesting. And then also, they identified at least 218 victims, but it's estimated his total victim count could be around 250, but could be as high as 459. So he is wow. a fucking butt-licking serial killer. Yeah, fuck you, dude. That was Harold. That was a lot. I know. Fucking... Dr. That's so awful. Taking advantage Shipman. of older people. I know it's it's actually it's and for crazy. no reason. Not even no. like there's fucked there's up. nothing it's like that's up. so fucked up. Yeah. So Dr. Harold Shipman. Yeah, he died in in 2004. So Harold the doctor known as Doctor Death, the Angel of Death, and the Good Doctor, not so good doctor, also known as Harold, you're a butlicker, <laughs> is a doctor who killed. Well, that's not fun. No, this is why I don't go to the doctor. <laughs> Stop. Just kidding. But still, it's creepy because you it just is. don't ever. Well, and Jesus, in my, we'll do another doctors that kill because there are so there's many so many cases of doctors. Like one of them was this woman who like shot babies with air and killed oh. babies, and then like it's fucked up. The like, baby it's ones are hard. Up, yeah. That's why I was like, I can't do that one today. It's so crazy because I feel like as a doctor, you're people are going to die under your care, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, how do you find out who is doing it because they are a murderer or who is yeah. doing it because they're, I mean, they're not trying to, but people are just dying. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this one was obviously a really fucked up case, just like mine. I know. I know. And I chose another one in Britain. You did. The British one, which is kind of was fun. interesting. It's my heritage. I'm like really, really Scottish and English and Irish. So but not British, so. I'm not British. (laughs) I was born in America. So that was episode six, friends. That's it. I think that was a long one. It was. You're welcome. It was a long one. But here's a cool thing. Again, like we said at the beginning, a couple of things. Our mini-sodes, Homotown Murders, starts this Thursday. So this Thursday, November 30th, our first episode comes out. Not a solved case, but definitely tune in because it is something that's kind of important and it's kind yeah. of going along and, and I'm, I'm glad that these fabulous humans reached out so that we can bring awareness for them but also email us right in your hometown murder murder at homocidepodcast.com so that you can share your hometown yes. murders with us tell us and everything then, yes and then don't forget what's the tea giveaway is also happening so go rate and review us specifically on apple Podcasts, but you can also do on spotify as well or both if you're feeling really sassy because we would love to hear from you and keep growing our fabulous little podcast yeah Follow us on all the socials. Follow us on all the socials. We're on everything. I miss Anna today. Right. 
I do. You'll still get episode. Her little sassy self. I know. It was kind of fun to do it on our own, which I know will happen again because oh, for sure it will. we don't live in New York City full time. And she does. So we'll be <laughs> jumping back and forth. But yeah, it was kind of fun to just hang with you. It was. Today, Bran. I love your little face. You're so cute. <laughs> All right, cool. So our next episode, we don't have a theme for. Episode seven. Episode seven might be host choice. So we, we might just know. Okay, did you ever watch the show Seventh Heaven when you were younger? Yeah. We should do episode seven on religious cult leaders that killed. That could be a fun one. Episode seven, you're going to heaven. Just kidding. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, let's That's not weird. die. Maybe we'll do that. We don't know episode seven quite yet, but we will. That's not jump a bad idea. It. Yeah. So stay I tuned. Guess, yeah, be I guess surprised. you'll have to be listen to find out. Listen to find out, friends. Thanks for playing along. We're going to send you out with some outro music. Brandon, you should try the... Are we ready? Thanks, everybody. Bye, Brandon Q. (laughs) Slut.